Please turn, if you would, back to Luke's account of the gospel, the gospel of Luke, and we'll be again in chapter 1. Pastor Lai Chow read the first half of the chapter, and I would like to now read the second half. So we'll pick up in Luke 1, verse 39, and read to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 1, please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed." For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their houses and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke blessing, he spoke blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray together. Our Father, come now by Your Holy Spirit. Show us wonderful things from this passage, wonderful things, needful things for sinners in need of grace. We pray that what we have not, You would give us, what we know not, You would teach us, and what we are not, You would make us. To the glory of the Lord Jesus, we pray, amen. As we anticipate the celebration of the birth of Uh, Our Savior, that is the purpose of Christmas, celebrating the coming of God's only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world for the salvation of sinners. Uh, I would like this week and next week to break from our normal uh, regular exposition of the Gospel of John 
Uh, we will pick it back up after our celebration of Christmas. Uh, we'll pick it back up in John 17. Uh, but for the next two weeks, this week and next week, I want us to reflect on the meaning of Christmas and the events of the incarnation and specifically its implications uh, for us. And I want to do that by looking today at Luke chapter 1 and then next week uh, at the beginning or the first half of Luke chapter 2. Now, we read a lot of text, 80 verses in Luke 1, so I, I, I want to summarize some of those events and take you through this passage uh, bit by bit. And the main material we will focus on is in those final few verses of Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 76 through 79. But I'd like to just summarize what we saw uh, in the earlier parts of the chapter. Uh, the chapter is really an extraordinary chapter in a number of ways. It's brimming with hope. It's brimming with expectation. It's brimming with praise and worship to God over what He is bringing about uh, in these events in Luke 1. And uh, all of the expectation and the hope and the worship is centered on what God will do uh, through two women, and more specifically, the two sons that these uh, women will bear. In the cases of both women, their conceptions are miraculous. Uh, Elizabeth uh, conceiving and having a child in old age and Mary conceiving as a virgin. Uh, in the cases of both women, the promise that they will conceive is communicated by an angel, the angel uh, Gabriel. And in the cases of both women, uh, they worship God, understanding these events, the events surrounding the birth of these two sons, to be in connection with a great redemptive plan that was promised long ago. They understand the coming of these two sons, the birth of these two sons, to be in connection with something that God had planned and revealed uh, hundreds and even thousands of years prior to these events. The first woman is, of course, Elizabeth. She's the wife of the priest Zechariah. The angel Gabriel visits Zechariah and reveals that Elizabeth is going to conceive and that they are going to have a son. And Zechariah at first does not believe this, believing that he and his wife are too old to have children. And it's indicated that as a result of his lack of faith, uh, he, is, uh, he becomes mute. His ability to speak and to communicate is taken away from him, and he will be mute the entire duration of the pregnancy. Uh, the next time that Zechariah speaks, it will be to prophesy and to worship God for what He has brought about. But for now, He will not be permitted to speak until the child is born. And of course, after Gabriel visits Zechariah, Elizabeth does in fact conceive, and she is filled with thanksgiving to God. She says in verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. And Elizabeth will, of course, give birth to a son, to call his name John. He's who we refer to often as John the Baptist. Uh, he will fulfill the words of the prophets and the angel concerning uh, that one who will come to prepare the way for the Lord, for the Messiah. Uh, he will be full of the Holy Spirit, the text says, and he will minister in the spirit and power of Elijah, that great prophet gone before. Uh, and he will be called the prophet of the Most High, for he will go before the Lord and prepare his ways. John the Baptist was that one prophesied from of old uh, who will come and who will be like a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, to prepare a way for the coming Messiah who will bring about redemption for God's people. That's Elizabeth and that's John. The second woman is, of course, Mary. And Mary, like Zechariah, is visited by the angel Gabriel, and it is revealed to her uh, that she will miraculously conceive a son while a virgin and will bear Israel's Messiah. And verse 32 says, He will be given the throne of His father David. And the fact that He will be given the throne of His father David is brought up in a couple of other places as well. Now, what is that a reference to? I don't assume everybody here knows uh, what exactly Mary is talking about. Uh, you see, there was a promise that God had made to King David about a thousand years prior to these events in Luke chapter 1. That promise is first recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm not going to ask us to turn there. Uh, but in that chapter, God enters into a covenant with David, and He makes promises to King David. And He tells David that there's going to come this, this son from his kingly line, 
and, and, and this coming son who will be greater than his father David, he will reign on his father's throne forever. Uh, and he will have an eternal dominion. And his kingdom will stretch from coast to coast. And he will rule forever God's people. And he will come from this kingly line. He will be a son of David. That's what's promised a thousand years prior to these words from Mary uh, in Luke chapter 1. Or these words, excuse me, from the angel in Luke chapter 1. And now the angel is revealing to Mary this promised son, uh, this promised seed from the line of David who will reign forever, uh, who will be the true and better son of David, uh, who will exercise truth and justice and dominion over the world. He is in your womb. You will bear this son, and he will be given the throne of his father David forever. As we go on to read, we see he will not only be given the throne of his father David, it's revealed he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, and he will bring about salvation for his people. And Mary simply believes the angel. She believes, and she does, in fact, as a virgin, conceive and becomes pregnant with this Son of David, who will be called the Son of the Most High, even the Son of God. Now, these two women, Mary and Elizabeth, they're pregnant contemporaneously. Now, Elizabeth is much older than Mary. She's Mary's cousin, but there's probably a, quite a large age gap between them, but they're pregnant contemporaneously. And at one point during their pregnancies, Mary visits Elizabeth. And in verses 40 and 41, when Mary walks in the door and greets Elizabeth, we read that the baby in her womb leaps for joy. Now, I don't know if that's you know, women today who are pregnant, especially later on in the pregnancy, uh, the baby will kick. Sometimes you can visibly see the baby kick and move in a mother's womb. I don't know if the baby starts kicking at that point or if this was something more profound than that. It was probably something more profound than that. Uh, the baby within Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. In some way, it was a signal to Elizabeth uh, that the woman who was going to bear their Savior has just walked in the door and the baby uh, leaps for joy. And we don't know exactly how, but Elizabeth is wonderfully aware that the child in Mary's womb is her Lord, which is such a striking thing. Could you imagine standing opposite a young virgin girl who is pregnant with your Savior? And Elizabeth has this awareness as she stands opposite Mary uh, that the Savior of the human race, the great son of David, uh, that is to come and is going to rule forever. The great king has come, and here he is in the womb of this humble virgin. What a humble thing. What an amazing thing, a glorious thing. You might speculate as to what their conversation uh, was like. Sometimes pregnant women will get together and go on walks together and talk about various things. Maybe they went on a walk together, and you can imagine what their conversation might have been like. Well, something of their conversation is revealed to us. Some of the words that Elizabeth shares with Mary and then Mary shares in Elizabeth's presence is recorded here in uh, Luke's gospel. Uh, Elizabeth says to Mary in verse 42, blessed are you among women. Now, let me just say, as a matter of history, okay, some hundreds of years after this, after Christ has come and the events of the cross and the resurrection are now in the rear view and the church is, 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 is planted and is expanding throughout the world. Some hundreds of years after that, uh, some people devised an understanding of uh, the Virgin Mary uh, that, that she was to be something of an object of worship in Christian circles, uh, that she was to be something of a mediator between people like us and the Lord Jesus. And some of them would go to a passage like this to try to establish that doctrine, that Mary is to be the object of prayer and the object of veneration and the object of worship. Well, that is all wrong, and that is blasphemous, and that is dishonoring to God and dishonoring to Christ. We have full access to God through one mediator, and that is the man Christ Jesus. We should not pray to Mary. We don't look to her as any sort of mediator, nothing like that. That's all wrong. But, but don't let that error that emerged some hundreds of years later diminish the truth of this passage. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, it's in every way appropriate that she addresses Mary in this way and says, uh, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And it's not just Elizabeth who says it in this chapter. Mary herself recognizes that she has become the object of the special favor of God. And she says, 
uh, in her song that we'll look at in a moment, uh, that generations from now on will call me blessed, will recognize that I have been the recipient of special favor and blessing from God. And it's not just Mary and Elizabeth. Uh, Gabriel himself, the angel, when he comes to Mary, refers to her as the favored one and says that you have found favor in God's sight. So it's in every way appropriate that we acknowledge this great and special blessing that God has bestowed upon uh, this humble virgin, uh, Mary. So Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb in verse 42. And she goes on to commend Mary for her faith, saying, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Well, Mary's response beginning in verse 46 is to just burst with praise to God in a song that has been known to Christian history uh, as the Magnificat. If you were to read this passage in Latin, uh, the first word in Mary's song is Magnificat, uh, or, or I magnify, and that's why it's known by that title. And what a wonderful thing it is that this song is recorded for us. It's a glorious song, and we, we learn something of the expectation Mary herself had of what these events signified and what they meant with the coming of the Lord Jesus into the world. Two, two simple things I want us to observe about the song itself just briefly. First of all, we should observe that Mary is keenly aware of the blessing and mercy and grace that has come to her in all of this. She recognizes that God has bestowed on her an unusual measure of kindness and grace and mercy. As she says in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why is it that that's the, the title she uses, the title she ascribes to God? It's because Mary herself sees in these events uh, her own salvation, uh, that, that this is the time in which God in the most powerful and climactic way will reveal Himself as the Savior of the world, the Savior of His people. And so she recognizes in the coming of Christ into the world, her own salvation is at stake. She knows she's a sinner in need of the grace of God, and now the Savior has come. And she rejoices in God, her Savior. Verse 48, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary's aware of personal blessing, personal salvation that is coming to her in these events. But the second thing to observe is that Mary is also aware uh, that the implications of the coming of Christ are far greater uh, than any personal blessing that will come to her alone. And we see this most clearly in the last two verses of her song. Verse 54 she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, just like with David a moment ago, I don't assume we're all familiar with what Mary is talking about here, but apparently she sees in these events the coming of the Messiah into the world, a, a connection between, between this and a promise that was made to Abraham and to the patriarchs some 1,500 plus years prior, that in these events, God is remembering His mercy promised long ago. Now, now don't see in that if, if, if um, we read that God remembered His mercy. It's not like He forgot about it and then He remembered it again. That's sometimes how we talk. It, it, it's more like if, if I had done something to offend you, uh, and I, I say to you, um, you know, don't, don't deal with me according to justice. Remember mercy. You know, it's, it's saying, let, let this, this attribute outstrip the other in its demonstration. So God is remembering mercy. There's going to be a great expression of His mercy in all of this. And, and Mary is recalling these merciful promises made to, apparently, Abraham some 1,500 or so years prior. And the promise to Abraham was made uh, that through Abraham's line, Abraham's seed, there would come this one, uh, this one son of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. 
through whom the mercy of God would be channeled to all the nations, not just the Jews only, but men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And, and Mary is cognizant that in these events, uh, the, the, the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus, the Son of David, the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, there is coming this Son of Abraham, uh, this greater Son who would bring about deliverance and salvation and blessing for the peoples. And she sees now uh, these events as being in continuation with a merciful plan that God had begun years and years prior. You can imagine every moment for Mary must have been electric for her as she realized the great climax of redemption had come. In her womb was the great son of David, uh, promised a thousand years prior. In her womb was the great son of Abraham. The great climax of the Abrahamic covenant was coming to pass in the birth of the Lord Jesus. Well, precisely how Mary thought this promise was going to be worked out, we don't know. But she does see in these events a connection between what God had promised to her father centuries ago and this little baby in her womb. And she perhaps, with Elizabeth and with others she spoke with, thought that at last the fulfillment of the promise is at hand. And the great redemption for God's people is going to come about. Well, then we have the recording of the birth of John the Baptist. And after he is born, the tongue of Zechariah is loosed, and the time has now come for him uh, to give his praise to God. We've heard from Elizabeth. We've heard from Mary as they have worshipped God uh, on account of these events. Uh, you wonder how much of what Zechariah said was premeditated. Uh, he had a long time to think about it, uh, what he might say. He knew the promise was going to be fulfilled. Elizabeth was pregnant, and so it was fooey on him for several months. And now his tongue is loosed, and now he comes to praise God. How much of that had he thought about for some time, and how much was the spontaneous inspiration of God's Spirit uh, we don't know exactly, but we do know he's prophesying. The Spirit of God is upon him, and he prophesies. And he says in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, uh, in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Zechariah himself, like Mary, is aware that these events are in connection to what the prophets promised of old. The son of David is here. God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. The promise is being fulfilled uh, through these events. In verse 72, Zechariah says that he is to show mercy, uh, the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant. What covenant is he talking about? The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Zechariah too sees in these events the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. God is now bringing about the, 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 the fullest and the richest fulfillment of those promises from so many years ago. Deliverance is at hand. And now in the time that remains, I just want us to look briefly at verses 76 through 79. Zechariah turns to his son, or perhaps he's holding his son, John, or he puts his hand on his son and he prophesies over his son. He says this, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, it's improbable that Zechariah anticipated, at this point, all the events that would take place in the rest of Luke's gospel. It is improbable that Zechariah knew precisely how these promises would be worked out, but he sees the connection. The promise to Abraham is here, the promise made to David is here. And God is going to bring about redemption in a most wonderful way. Uh, however, whatever he knew, this is nonetheless, verses 76 through 79, a brilliant summary of what it will mean that the Lord has come and that the promise is to be fulfilled. It's a glorious summary of what we celebrate 
at Christmas time. And the question I want to ask in light of these verses is this. Uh, what does Christmas mean for sinners? What does Christmas mean for sinners? From these verses, that's the question I want to ask. What does Christmas, the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God into the world, what does it mean for sinners according to these verses? And there are three things in particular I'd like to highlight. What does it mean? What does Christmas mean for sinners? First of all, that salvation has come by the forgiveness of sins. That salvation has come by the forgiveness of sins. Look again at verse 76 and 77. A new child will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. The simple point is this. Jesus comes to give knowledge of salvation to His people in, or it could, perhaps should be translated, by the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus comes to give knowledge of salvation to His people by the forgiveness of their sins. Two things to observe here. First of all, Jesus' mission in coming into the world, Jesus' mission was one of salvation. He comes to give knowledge of salvation to His people. Uh, to give knowledge of salvation, it, it's probably not that He was going to give them information about how they get saved. Uh, that's not what, what, what is meant by that phrase, to give knowledge of salvation. It, it's more like to give the experience of something, to give the experience of salvation, the sure knowledge of it, the experience of it. If I said to you, I have knowledge of what it means to be a man, I don't mean that I have that hypothetically or theoretically or someone has informed me about uh, what it is like to be a man. I am a man and I have lived like a man and I have experienced what it means to be a man. I have the knowledge, the experiential knowledge of what it means to be a man. Well, well that's something of how the word is being used here. That, that knowledge of salvation is going to be given, meaning the experience of salvation is going to be given. Jesus came to save actual people from their sins and to accomplish for them the securing of their salvation and giving to them the experience of salvation. He is actually going to save us. Christ Jesus came into the world for a purpose, and that purpose was to achieve actual salvation for actual sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15, it's one of the sweetest verses to meditate on this time of the year. It's actually the verse that Zach is preaching at Friendship Baptist this morning. This is a faithful saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world, why? To save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. Is that something to celebrate at Christmas time? that the coming of the Lord Jesus into the world was a mission of salvation to save His people from their sins. Uh, John 3.16, 17, you're probably mostly familiar with. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Why did Jesus come into the world? What was the point? What was the mission? It was so that sinners like you and me could have salvation. Christ Jesus came into the world not to exact judgment and condemnation, not to burn up the world by fire, uh, not to consign us to death and judgment. The reason God sends His Son, the Lord Jesus, in the world is so that sinners can be saved, can be forgiven of their sins. If you're a Christian, what should Christmas mean to you? Well, it should mean that God has undertaken to save me and to give to me the knowledge of salvation. And what does Christmas mean for sinners? That salvation has come and it is available to all who look to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith. But, but a second thing to notice about this statement from Zechariah is that salvation itself is bound up in the forgiveness of sins. He will give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. So what does it mean to be saved? We talk about that a lot. 
so-and-so was saved. We pray for God to bring salvation to someone. What do we have in mind? What's the content of salvation? What's the grand issue? What are we talking about? It is of the most urgent and eternal importance that we get this precisely right. So, so let me correct some misunderstandings that have been propounded throughout the centuries. The content of salvation, the grand issue in salvation is not moral reform. It's not getting your act together. What it means to be saved by God and to have the knowledge of salvation is not that you have the wherewithal and the gumption to get your act together and reform the way you behave. No one will be saved by deeds of the law. No one can be saved by external conformity to God's law. When we talk about what it means to be saved, and when we refer to a man or a woman as a recipient of salvation, we're not talking about people who got their act together and just morally reformed themselves. That's not the content of salvation. Uh, Secondly, salvation is not strict adherence to a system of religious formalism. When we talk about salvation, that's not what we're talking about. You cannot achieve salvation by observing and performing just the right number of rituals in the right order that if you uh, 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 submit yourself to some, some system of religion, some form of rituals and practice them in the right way, in the right order, you can have salvation. That's not the idea at all. And it is a matter of the greatest tragedy that a vast number of people across the face of the earth actually believe that that they can achieve salvation by following the forms. That there are people who actually believe that um, uh, you know, if you actually take the bread and drink the cup, that, that is how you become saved. Why was it so important that President John F. Kennedy, after his brains were blown on the back of the car in Dallas, Texas, why was it so important that they get to him the last rites and just put the bread in his mouth even while he's unconscious? Well, because in his system of religion, it was believed that by virtue of adhering to this religious form, he actually would have salvation. That's not taught in the Bible at all. Uh, if centuries passed, it was very common if an infant was sick, well, you better baptize them right away because they need that water sprinkled on their head in order to be saved. There are old ladies across the world right now who are rubbing beads together, thinking that by doing that, they can have salvation. As if the good news is you just follow this 10-step plan of religious formalism and you could be saved. That's not the message at all. And, and let us not look down our noses at such people as those who live in southern Christian culture. You know, we're, this phrase means anything to anybody, low church evangelicals. We have our own modes of formalism by which People across the country think they are saving themselves and arriving at a place of favor with God. You ask people, I hear this quite often, you ask people what hope they have of salvation at the last day. Man, we were there whenever the church doors were opened. I've been going to church my whole life. I've, I've tried to follow forms, right? Tried to do the things that I must do. Uh, I was, I was uh, uh, six, seven years old. I walked down the aisle. I prayed the prayer. My preacher signed it in his, my Bible. You know, and that day I, be, I became a Christian, and that's all I need. I got my certificate or something like that. We're guilty of the same superstition, that, that we can establish salvation through adherence to just some steps of religious formalism. But, but, but that is not the grand issue. It's not moral reform. It's not adherence to a pattern of religious formalism. It's not ten steps for self-help. Some people talk about salvation as though the big issue in it all is so that you could have a better life. I was in a Christian setting just recently. I think this brother meant well. But the essence of his gospel message was, trust me, if you invite Jesus into your life, you'll just have a better life. It'll go better for you. Uh, You won't be so depressed You'll get your act together. Your marriage will be healthier. That is not the content of salvation. That's not the grand issue. The grand issue in salvation is and always has been that our sins can be forgiven by God. 
that though our sins be as scarlet, He will wash us and make us whiter than snow. The question is not, have you sinned, but are your sins forgiven? Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's true of Christians and non-Christians. The big distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian is that the Christian has been forgiven of their sins and desperately wants the non-Christian to come to Christ and to find that same forgiveness. And so as as Zechariah contemplates in his prophecy uh, what it means that Christ will bring the knowledge of salvation to His people, he says it will be by the forgiveness of their sins. That is the only hope for sinners. What is the meaning of Christmas for sinners? It is that you can be saved from your sins, you can have your sins forgiven, that God will be pleased through Jesus to forgive you for all your sins, past, present, and future. And you, like so many saints around the world, can sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. My sin, not in part, but the whole. Not not just the respectable, tidy sins will He forgive. Not just the biggies and the top ten that I can think of. My sin, not in part, but the whole, will be addressed in this salvation that Jesus brings. And I can be acquainted with the forgiveness of sins. There's a sense in which we never lose the the wonder over that. I think it's healthy that Christians are just regularly surprised by how great God's grace is toward them and how massive His forgiveness toward them is. I have nowhere to hide. I have sins as scarlet. They are in broad view for God to see. And yet, in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, He's designed a way by which I can be forgiven my sins. There's a line in that song, Man of Sorrows, what a name. We sing that often. I think we sung it last week. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Like, can it be this good? Can it be true? It's not just my little sins. It's not just three or four of the big ones. Full atonement is given to all those who look to the Lord Jesus in faith and repentance. What does Christmas mean for sinners? That salvation has come by the forgiveness of sins. Secondly, and more briefly, what does Christmas mean for sinners? It means that God is pleased to show mercy. God is pleased. God is ready to show mercy. If you would look again at verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. The theme of God's mercy is brought up again and again actually in Luke 1. Mary references it a couple of times. In verse 50, she says, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Verse 54, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. And in Zechariah's words, he says that we will be given the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of God. The coming of Jesus into the world, the incarnation, Christmas, is the product of the mercy of God. It is the result of God's mercy. You children know what mercy is. You know what we mean when we use that term? Mercy is a lot like grace. They're sort of like synonyms. Not exactly, but sort of. Grace, we talk about this often, grace is the unearned favor of God. You can't earn grace. And mercy is very similar. It's unearned favor. Uh, But if I came to you this morning, kids, and I gave you a candy cane, and I said, here, have this. This is my gift to you. Don't come up to me after the service looking for a candy cane or expecting a candy cane. But suppose that I did that. Well, Well, that would be an act of sheer grace. I'm just giving you a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. I just thought I'm going to bless you and give you a candy cane. Okay, that's an act of grace, but you wouldn't exactly say that's an act of mercy, would you? Mercy is a little bit different, a little bit different nuance there. Okay, mercy is also unearned favor, but, but mercy takes into account the demands of justice 
and recognizes that there is a disparity between what the person deserves and what they're going to get. Uh, see, see, when we read that the coming of Jesus into the world is going to be a product of the mercy of God, we should recognize that God is doing now uh, good things for us, grace for us, in spite of what we deserve. He's showing mercy uh, when justice would require that He exacts punishment on us and penalty upon us and judgment upon us. But instead, He remembers mercy. And He's pleased to show mercy to us. And that's what's going on in these events of Christmas, the coming of Jesus into the world. We recognize that though we have sinned and have rebelled against God, and though our sins have introduced between us and God a vast chasm, and though our sins sink us lower than hell itself, God is pleased to remember mercy. And we live in the age in which God is ready and pleased to show mercy. And Zechariah recognizes this. God is is bringing about the climax of His mercy. Jesus is coming. Salvation will be brought to His people. The forgiveness of sins will come. And this will be by the tender mercy of God. So I encourage you, make your celebration of Christmas this year a celebration of the mercy of God by which He pardons sinners and makes them right and welcome and safe in His presence. When you see the portrayals of the nativity scene, when you sing Silent Night, and when you contemplate the birth of Jesus, don't just think, isn't Christmas so sweet and so charming? But as you think of those scenes, think to yourself that because of these events, I, a sinner and a rebel against God, who has only merited hell forever, have through these events become the object of divine mercy. That's something to celebrate at Christmas time, that God has been pleased and that God is still ready to show mercy through Jesus Christ. And it's the mercy of God that is in Mary's mind as she puts her hand upon her pregnant stomach It's in the mind of Zechariah as his son John comes into the world to prepare the way of the Lord. God is remembering his mercy. Thirdly and finally, what does Christmas mean for sinners? First of all, that salvation has come by the forgiveness of sins. Number two, that God is pleased to show mercy. And thirdly and finally, that light will shine on those who sit in darkness. And that light will shine on those who sit in darkness. Verse 77, He will come to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise or the dawn or the day spring shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. If you were well-versed in the Old Testament, and many of you are, you know that the coming of the Messiah is very often associated with the coming of light, with light shining, with day breaking. It's actually all over the Old Testament. One place where that idea that the Messiah brings light with Him is especially prominent is in Isaiah just read a few verses to you. Uh, Looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah, in Isaiah 9 verse 2 we read, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And it's just a few verses later that we read, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, that well-known passage. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. 
For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And Zechariah is aware that these promises of coming light that will shine on the world and will shine on those who sit in darkness and will shine on prisoners who sit in darkness, that light has come. That light is here in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you've been with us in this series on John, you already know what I'm going to say. Jesus Himself makes very plain that He sees Himself as the fulfillment of these passages. In John 8 and verse 12, He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. As he's standing before crowds of people in John chapter 12, verse 46, he says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. Jesus, as he stands before Jewish people who would be well aware of these passages in Isaiah's prophecy, He says, light has come. I have come. Light has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And now it is for light to shine on all those peoples of the world who sit in deep darkness. The sunrise has come. The dawn has come. And light will dispel the darkness. And this light will bring about salvation. The idea is not simply that light will come and force a distinction or a divide or something like that, and that is one of the ways in which light functions in Scripture, but the idea here in Luke 1 is that this light will bring about salvation. It will actually guide the feet of those who sit in darkness into the path of peace. Those people who sat in darkness, even in the shadow of death that their sins had led them to, light will shine. And for all those who embrace this light, they will have the light of life and will not remain in darkness. What does Christmas mean for sinners? It means that sinners like us, whose lives are so well acquainted with darkness, there are so many of you who could testify, so many of you could testify, that before coming to Christ, the light of the world, your life was covered in darkness. Your life... Uh, was sitting in the shadow of death. Well, the message of Christmas is that the people who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death have seen a great light. That light has dawned. Salvation has come. And darkness can be defeated and darkness can be dispelled. The good news of Christmas, the implications of Christmas, the significance of the incarnation of the Son of God is that all of my darkness and all of my sin and all of my baggage, and all of my malice, and all of my pride, and all of my selfishness, and all of my bitterness, and all of my lust, and all those things that would so cling to me and drag me down lower than hell itself can be addressed and can be dealt with by the light of the world. That in Jesus the sunrise has come and He's pleased to shine on those who sit in darkness. He's pleased to guide our feet out of our sin and out of our darkness and out of our sorrow and out of our night and to guide us into the path of peace, the path of salvation and the path of deliverance. So in closing, what does Christmas mean for sinners? What does Christmas mean for you? It is that salvation has come by the forgiveness of sins. It is that God is pleased to show mercy to sinners. And it is that light comes to shine on those who have sat in darkness. To each and every one here, I hope the significance of Christmas for you is that though you are covered in sin and though you stand under the just judgment of God, you would recognize in the events of the incarnation and the coming of the Son of God into the world that there is a solution for sin that sinners can be forgiven, that sinners can be shown mercy, that sinners can come out of darkness and into light by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners, who came into the world as light so that all those who believe in Him will not remain in darkness but will have the light of life. It's so much more than this bright Christmas tree, candy canes, sleigh bells, and exchanging presents. Let your Christmas be a celebration that sinners can be saved from their sins, 
that you can be saved from your sins, that God has conclusively and decisively provided a solution to the world's problem, the problem of sin that separates us from God Himself. God is pleased to show mercy. In Jesus Christ, God is pleased to save sinners. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we believe the trustworthy statement. We embrace it ourselves. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We pray that that message, that gospel, would come home to each heart here with power and with light. We pray that Christ would appear so wonderful to us. uh, That the events of His coming into the world the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the Son of the Most High, the Son of God incarnate in flesh, we pray that we would be encouraged to come to Him with all of our burdens and all of our sins, knowing that in Him He is pleased to forgive us our sins, uh, that He is pleased to accomplish mercy for us, that He's pleased to shine on us and dispel the darkness of our lives. We pray, Father, that as we in a special way in these weeks contemplate how you gave your Son uh, to us, that you sent him as the God-man, that we would be impressed with the glory of salvation and redemption and what you've accomplished for us, that we would be encouraged to cling more to the Lord Jesus as our Savior and our Deliverer, the one who has accomplished salvation for us. And that we would be so moved by the lavish grace and mercy you have shown toward us in Christ that we would be so moved that we would publish this message, speak of this message to others, to tell them, to warn them, to invite them, to tell them that today is the day of salvation, that today is the day when you, Father, have been pleased to remember mercy that you have sent your Son into the world to give to people a knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, and that even now the light is shining upon those who sit in darkness. Father, we pray that this message would be often on our lips, that it would be lived out in our lives, and that in our experience as a local church, we would see many who are brought to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and the solution for their sins, for their good and for the glory of the Lord Jesus. We ask that you would accomplish these things and work these things. We pray together in the name of Jesus. Amen.